Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Let me have a moment of personal privilege here before I dig into the Word of God with you. I was thinking as we were singing this morning, it just came to my mind the first day that I held my first child in my arms. And my wife and I had married with every expectation of children being born out of our union. But as it turned out, we delayed that process as I was completing my graduate education. And we came to that point where we were settled down. I had been called to pastor church here in El Paso on the east side, a fledgling group of people, which became my family and my wife's family as well. She had gotten a job teaching. So we thought, well, this is the time. We discovered we could not have children because of physical issues with my wife. And we were brokenhearted, frankly, when we heard that news. Many times we are sort of indifferent when people have a miscarriage on the way to becoming parents. And let me tell you, not being able to have a child with the expectation that it just what happens on both sides of our family, there'd never been a problem with having children. But when that hit me, it hit me like a ton of bricks, and it did Sally as well. I remember calling her parents to talk to them about it. And I broke down when I was talking to my father-in-law, to my mother-in-law. It was a heartbreaking thing. And so the physician who helped my wife said to me and to her when she came out of an exploratory operation that determined her infertility, and the likelihood that she would never be able to conceive a child. He said, Mr. Woods, Mrs. Woods, I think if you want to be a parent, you should start the process of adoption right away. I wasted no time in taking that advice. I had no doubt that that's what God would have us to do, and my wife was on the same page. We haven't always been on the same page, but we were about that, that's for sure. And so as the Lord would have it, I had been asked to be the pastor of this little church on the east side, and I mentioned that already, and one of the people who served on the search team was Madge Watson. That name means something to somebody in the room besides me. Miss Watson was the director of Lemore Children's Home, and there was an arm of Lemore Children's Home which was given to helping unwed mothers who wanted to take their children to term to find a home where that child could be loved. Within six months, look, most people have to wait nine months. We only had to wait six months. It was awesome. And little did we know, nor did Madge Watson know, that when we met her as part of a search team, that she would be used by God to help us. Orberly Malone, many of you know that name if you're in the law community, you know his name, many of you do. Great man. He became our attorney. 
And he gave us a break. Can you imagine a lawyer giving you a break financially? We have many such lawyers in our church. And Orbele represented us and he fathered us really through the process. And then the day came when we received a call from Lemore Children's Home. We have your child. And when he came to be in my arms, I'm sure Sally had the same experience. It was just overwhelming. And I'm sure many of you have. With the birth of your first child and with the second child, I might add. The first one, of course, in light of the circumstances of our lives, really touched my heart so deeply. So this is the message I have for you if you're a child here. And I don't think you want to be called a child, but I'm saying someone, you're not married yet. You anticipate being married. Please understand how much your father loves you, your earthly father. How important you are to him. You're important to your mother, of course. She put up with a lot with you before you were born and has continued to bear the brunt of that probably. But the point is, let your father know you love him. Whether you're, you're on the best of terms, it's a good time to get reconciled to your father if you're not. I had not intended to take 10 minutes to talk about that, but I gave you a little glimpse into my life in my history. This passage of scripture that we're considering today from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, we pick up where we left off last week, verses 12 through 17, is a very significant passage that applies to each of us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his magnum opus, The Cost of Discipleship, said, when Christ bids a man to come and follow me, he calls him to come and to die. Part of dying to ourselves is that we take seriously what Jesus teaches in these verses that we're looking at today. In these verses, Jesus Christ calls you and me to make serving others who are following Christ a lifestyle, not an occasion that comes once in a while, but we should be on the lookout to be servants to one another. And there is great benefit for the people who are served through you and me because it will be Christ himself as we yield ourselves to Christ to do the serving. But it presents a picture to the world that the world is not used to seeing where people of all different ethnic backgrounds, people from all socioeconomic backgrounds, people care about each other to the level that they're willing to stoop to love one another. Not necessarily in an actual root ceremony of washing feet, but Christ calls us to this. In this passage of scripture, let's just begin. I'm going to do some explaining and perhaps applying as I work my way through this. Let's look at verse 12. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know that what I have done to you? This verse rewinds in a sense because it's a reverse of what had happened earlier. And we saw last week that 
there is the probable picture here of Christ's whole being as it relates to our salvation. Jesus rose up from the place where he was lounging at table. When he rose up, there are those who signify that means or represented the fact that he was sitting on his throne in heaven and he had been given the assignment within the Godhead to become one of us and so he rose up and then he took off his garments. Jesus is described as having done this. We saw this last week and that is signifying that he divested himself of outward glory. He was radiant beyond the capacity for any human being to look at in his pre-incarnate state. But in order to become a, a sacrifice that is adequate for our sins, he had to become one of us. He had to experience everything that we've experienced as human beings without sinning. And that, therefore, he became the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And we are made right with God through the work of Jesus Christ, something we could never do for ourselves. But Jesus had to, in effect, hide his glory. And then he girded himself with a towel. That's indicative of the fact that Jesus was getting ready to wash the feet. And the foot washing itself had to do with a cleansing. And this leads us to what he says in the last part of verse 12. Do you know what I've done to you? We saw last week when Jesus says in verse 10, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. He was talking about once Jesus comes and he does the work that I spoke of a moment ago in becoming the propitiation is the large word in Scripture, meaning a suitable sacrifice for sin and the place that God poured all His wrath out to satisfy His holiness. But the result of that was that we who trust in Him have been bathed. And the idea here is made clean in the eyes of God. We still have a tendency to sin. That's why Jesus does this reenactment, as it were, of washing the feet. And how he does this over and over again. When we who are clean for eternity because of what Christ has done for us, we could not do it ourselves for sure. But what happens when we walk through the world, just like these 12 apostles walked through the dirty streets of Jerusalem, their feet got dirty. They would have bathed before going to this place at some time. They were probably bathed up, but their feet got dirty. And that is a picture of what happens to us as we walk through the world and we give in to the world. We give in to temptation and we sin. And Christ wants us to know that we are to come to Him as soon as we are aware of that. And we believe what he says, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. Purify us. Amazing. Cleanse us. The very word that's used here by John, he uses again in 1 John when it comes to the cleansing process. We are completely bathed 
in the sense of being forgiven forever. Not based on anything we've done, but strictly based upon what Christ has done on our behalf and what the Father did for us through Christ. But when Jesus says in the last part of verse 12, do you not know what I have done to you? Here's what's interesting. The word bathed, Jesus uses in verse 10, the tense of it means once bathed, always bathed. We saw that last week. We have a phrase we use, and rightly so, once saved, always saved. Because what Christ does lasts forever. And what he uses here, once again, is the tense of the verb where he says, you also, you know what I have done to you and it can't be undone. This is great news for us to say the least. What he has done is finished. He says from the cross later in the book of John, it is finished. He uses that same tense of verb. I'm not trying to be technical. I'm just trying to be instructive here. It's very encouraging and it helps us when we face our own sinfulness to understand we don't need to run and hide from God. We run to God and say, Father, I have sinned. I'm so sorry. Please wash my feet as it were. What we look at in verse 13, Jesus says to this group, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. Earlier in the book of John, the third chapter, Nicodemus, in addressing Jesus, when he visited Jesus one night, says, We know, Rabbi, that you are a teacher come from God. Well, that's true, but actually Jesus is God become a teacher, isn't it? Jesus is God. And he is the expert, the flawless teacher. You call me teacher and Lord, you are right, for so I am. And then look at what he says in 14. For I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet. If I did, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now let me draw attention to what is obvious to you, I'm sure. When he first says what the apostles were saying about him, you call me teacher and Lord. The word teacher was, in the original language, was the word rabbi, really. And so, yes, it was appropriate for men who attached themselves to a rabbi to use this terminology in addressing him. And then also, Lord, probably at this point in the disciples' lives, they had not completely identified Jesus as God. They thought maybe he was, but here again, this word Lord is capitalized in our translations of the Bible, at least in mine, the New American Standard. But the word was used with a little L, if you will, by other students who attached themselves, disciples if you were, to other rabbis. But when Jesus uses it in verse 14, he reverses the order. If I then the Lord and teacher. Now let's stop and consider this for just a moment. Jesus knew who he was, didn't he? He certainly did. And he wants us just as surely as he wanted these men. In verse 15 he says, For I gave you an example that you also shall do as I did to you. Christ's example 
is to be followed by all who call him their Lord. And his example is an example of extreme humility. Perhaps you know that both in Jewish culture and also in Greco-Roman culture, it was undesirable to really be in that position of the servant of all. Christ was not interested in his day of copying culture. And neither is he interested in our culture, copying our culture. He wants us to be different. He wants us to be like him. He wants us to be men and women in whom he dwells who reach out to one another and give a demonstration of what real Christianity is. A world which is aching for some sort of demonstration of what it means to be real. And a world which sits up and takes notice, not at the upper echelons, but I'm talking about the rank and file human being. They would take note of you and me not in any way pulling any kind of card on people because we are Christians or we have a particular position in the culture at large, but seeing how all the barriers are broken down in the body of Christ. And we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as Jesus did, and it takes great humility to do that. If we had time, we would go to Matthew 18, where Jesus talks about how unless we become like a little child, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that a quaint picture, like a little child? Why was he using a child as an example in this regard? Well, here's why. Because children are humble. Now, we know they have issues, just like we do as adults, but really they're humble. And they are humble and they are inquisitive. Children are by nature inquisitive. And they want to know. And they want to apply what they learn. They're very, very interested. And another thing about children as it relates to us as parents, I was watching the uh, finale of the NBA playoffs and what was interesting, I saw a lot of the victors who were the warriors, Golden State Warriors, and they had their kids with them. And their kids, they had no idea they were on TV. They had no idea that their dad had been a part of a team that had won the NBA championship. They didn't care. That man was simply daddy, right? And we have that kind of simplicity in Christ when we really understand what it means to come to Jesus and be humble like a child. Another passage is in Matthew 20 where Jesus says, if you want to be great, the great one in my kingdom will be the servant of all. If you want to be first, 
The person who is first will be, he ups the ante here, the slave of all. For even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus, in washing the feet, and he was on the brink of going to the cross at this point that we're reading in John 13, but he was preparing them, and he had been preparing them throughout the entirety of the three years that he spent with them. And he wanted them to understand that if we are going to be humble like him, not only are we going to be inquisitive and teachable, but we are also going to be submissive to him. And then in this passage, of course, let's look at verse four and five from last week. Rose, he rose from supper and laid his garments aside and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Then he poured out water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel which he was girded. And we see here how Jesus gives us this great example of humility when he washed the feet of the disciples. Jesus earlier in the book of Matthew says this, if anyone is weary, heavy laden, come to me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. We are to be men and women who eagerly come to Jesus with anticipation of hearing what he has to say so that we can adapt our lives to his life so that we can be in a position of obedience and service to him. Christ claimed lordship and also teacher. Christ expects us to follow his example of humility in this regard. In 1878, the Salvation Army took that name for the first time in its brief history. William and Catherine Booth had been assigned to the east side of London, the seediest side, the neediest side of London for their first responsibility, pastoring and leading a Methodist church. And God did a mighty thing through the Booths. And this so-called Salvation Army began to just blossom and burst forth in full bloom. Word traveled across the ocean to the U.S. And people, especially those associated with Methodism, they heard about it. And one such man, his name was Samuel Logan Bringle. Pastor Bringle was a bright young man, still in his 20s, but he was given a church that just grew under him tremendously. And he began to think pretty highly of himself, but he heard about the story of the Salvation Army, and what he did, he began to study more and more, and he sensed that the Lord wanted him to go across the ocean and join. Mind you, he had, in a way, from a, an ecclesiastical point of view, the world by the tail in his own progression. But he knew that that was not what God wanted him to do. So as he made his way across the ocean, he prayed and he thought, he imagined, 
He imagines himself becoming one of the top leaders of this fledgling ministry. And he was so excited. He wanted to be a top leader in the U.S., and he undoubtedly would have been had he stayed here in the States. But he was thinking, I'll be the right-hand man of General Booth. Surely he will see that in me when we meet. And when he got there, he introduced himself to William Booth. And after they spoke a while, this is what Booth said to him. I'm not sure you belong in the Salvation Army. And he was stunned. Why wouldn't someone want him with his talent and his drive? He said, why? And listen to what Booth said to him. You've been your own boss too long. Wow. He could tell it. This stung. And in order to test Bringle, this is what Booth did. Instead of giving him some responsibility right away that would be comparable to his capacity and his experience, he sent him down underground into a basement, and there he found 18 pairs of boots which belonged to cadets that he had become one of, by the way. He was going to have to start at the bottom and work his way up, and they were dirty. This part of London, of course, was not a high-class area. Sewage ran raw in the streets. And so he was down there cleaning those boots up, and, gra and he was grousing to God, grousing to God. And he said to himself, have I followed my own fancy across the Atlantic in order to black boots? And then in his mind's eye, he had a picture just burst forth. He hadn't read this passage that we're looking at, but it burst forth. He saw Jesus bending down to this ragtag, uneducated, untrained group of men and washing their feet. It was a dramatic moment in his life. And then he said, through tears, he could not say it out loud. He was so choked up with emotion and sorrow. He said, Lord, you wash their feet, I will black their boots. No matter how significant you or I may be, in our own minds, in the minds of others, in our church, in our work, no matter how significant we may think we are, we need to understand that to be who Christ called us to be, we're going to care for people the way he did by becoming their servant slash slave, if you will, to do ministry to them. Christ was not crazy when he said, I am the Lord and the teacher. Some people have tried to assign insanity to Jesus. After all, he was a peasant whose trade was carpentry and whose vocation was an itinerant preacher. This guy is just deluded, people say. Christ, however, in this passage, he says, I am Lord. That speaks of authority. Did Jesus display authority in what he taught? Sure he did. 
In fact, after he finishes what we know as a Sermon on the Mount, Matthew makes a short statement commenting on that great message. The people were awed after hearing what he had to say, which is recorded in Matthew's Gospel of the 5th through the 7th chapters, and they said, this man is one who speaks with authority. He's not like our teachers. You see, the teachers that they had had didn't have any interest in diving into the Word of God. They rather looked to all the well-known rabbis who lived in that day and prior to them, and then they got their ideas from them. Where did Christ get His ideas? Well, we know that in more than one place, look at verse 49 of chapter 12. He says, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. That's why Christ was so authoritative. Don't mishear what I said. He was not authoritarian. That was reserved for the Pharisees. He was authoritative though. And what that simply means is people's hearts were pierced when they heard Christ speak. And Jesus was this authority figure. Because why? He was God become a teacher. Christ combined authority with humility based on his own self-awareness. Jesus knew who he was. He knew, verse 3 of this chapter says, that he had come from God and was going back to God. He knew who he was. He was God become man. He had no doubt about it. Jesus reveals the right relationship in these words between what a disciple is and who Jesus himself is. We're sinners. He's the Savior. He's our Lord. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3.18 that we're to keep on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. Jesus understood that. What does this imply to us? He is Lord and He is teacher. What it means is we have to come under His Lordship and humble ourselves before Him, recognize we need Him to save us. We need Him to wash our hearts clean. We need Him to guide us. Apart from Him, we can do nothing is what the Bible says. We need to be in that position of submission and humility to the Lord. But once having found ourselves in that position, we're ready to hear what He has to say. In Isaiah 50, verse 4, the Bible says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of a disciple so that I may sustain the weary one with the Word. As we wash people's feet, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we wash their feet figuratively, as we minister to them and we serve them, not in a way that would be condescending in any way, but when we do that, then the Lord will use us to minister to them because we've heard from the Lord. We've spent time. We are students and He's our teacher. We are servants 
and he is our Lord. The implication of the Lordship of Christ and the teaching ministry of the Lord Jesus, well, we got to obey the Lord. That's the idea of Lordship. Jesus says in Luke 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The thing which authenticates my being a servant of the Lord is do I do what he says? There are a lot of people, there were in Christ's day, there is in every era, who are fascinated with teaching about God. We want to know a lot about God. We, don't know, we want to know everything about every doctrine of God. But that's as far as our interest goes. We're full of knowledge, which is important. I'm not making light of that at all. But what I'm saying is, it's incomplete until I obey what the Lord has to say. Absolutely. And in the beginning of that process, having heard from the Lord, from the Word of God, by the Holy Spirit, it causes me to want to be a person who obeys the Lord. Let me just read one line. I could read more, but we're not going to have enough time for this. From the pen of a man named E. Stanley Jones. Dr. Jones was a missionary for the greatest part of his life to India and other parts of Asia. And he says this in his book, The Word Became Flesh. He says there's a reason why Jesus turned the order around besides the one that I've mentioned. And that is because sometimes we don't necessarily fully understand why the Lord tells us to do certain things. We can't quite make sense of it. But we're told to go ahead and obey. And what happens when we obey God, sometimes we don't get it all. It becomes clear to us. Look at John 7. 17. Jesus speaks of this in John 7, 17. And this is what we read. He says, If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. If you want to know the will of God, do it. And then see what happens. That's what God would have us to understand. That's what Jesus our Lord would have us to understand we're to humble ourselves and trust Him. We sang Jesus is the center of it all. It brought to my mind something that John Stott, who is with the Lord now, said in one of the books which I read. He said this, Christ is the center of Christianity. Everything else is circumference. It's easy for us to sort of nudge Jesus off center and put our trust in other people or in methods instead of trusting in Him as our teacher and more importantly as our Lord and apply what He gives us. We must submit our minds to the Lord. That's important. And the way that works is we embrace the truth that we have the mind of Christ. Where is the mind of Christ given to us? In the Bible. And that's why it's important that we read the Word of God, not occasionally, 
but regularly. Can you imagine having an audience one-on-one -on -one with Jesus Christ every day? Can you imagine? Well, I submit to you this morning, that's what He wants from you and me, to open our Bibles with the expectation that He's going to teach us. It never fails that I'm taught or have things I have learned from Him before reinforced when I come before Him and open the Bible and He talks. I don't hear Him audibly, but I hear Him in the ears of my heart. He enlightens my eyes. And this is not because I'm anything special. I'm just one of the children of God. If you know Christ, that is true for you. Humbling, following Christ brings happiness into our lives. Where is this found in this passage of Scripture? Verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Was he saying to us, if it was good for Jesus, it's good for us, isn't it? If Jesus humbled himself to wash the dirty feet of his apostles, surely we follow him in that. He goes on to say, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Jesus uses these exact words, two different words in the original language, both translated sent in the New American Standard Bible here. If we were to go to the 20th chapter, this is what we read. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, he's talking about his own mission that the Father sent him on. It's the same word that is used here when he's speaking of them. The first word for sent. Greater, that one who is sent is not greater than the one who sent him. The Lord says, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Jesus is equipping us through his word and empowering us by his presence and his lordship in our lives to accomplish the life mission he's given to each one of us. And foundational to that is a commitment to our serving one another. He goes on to say in this passage in verse 16, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. By the way, the last part, you are blessed if you do them. The word translated do, a simple word in English. The reader of this in the original language quickly notes that it's a present tense verb, which simply means there's never a moment in my life going forward, there will never be a moment when it's not appropriate for me to do these things that I see Jesus giving me an example of in this passage of Scripture. Every day, every day, I'm to look for opportunity to be a servant like Christ was, denying myself, humbling myself, putting others' interests before my own. In Philippians 2, the Bible says that we are have to have the same mind or attitude that was in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus is, gone, is said by Paul in that passage, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Bible says also in that same section in chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. I am always out of bounds 
as far as God is concerned. When I don't consider you as my sister in Christ, you as my brother in Christ, exactly the way I'm told to do in the book of Philippians. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Instead of sort of vying for attention or nudging our way to a place of prominence in the world, what Christ wants us to do is look out for one another. And by the way, another by the way, Jesus, was he mealy-mouthed? Was Jesus a wimp? No. He was a man par excellence. He is the prototypical man. But we see real manhood represented in Christ and that he served in this way. If you know these things, just reconsider today. Think about this. I want to challenge you to go home and read this and evaluate your life based upon what Jesus did and what Jesus says. And take what he says, yield it yourself to Christ, and let him take control of your life in a fresh way. The word translated blessed here in verse 17 is the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. That sounds like a namby-pamby kind of life, doesn't it? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. Some of us need to wash someone's feet who has been mean to us, who has harmed us in some way. They may not even know it, but what we need to do is be humble enough in Christ was. He was washing the feet of the men whose sin put Him on the cross. Amazing. But He says in the midst of that, that I'm washing you clean. What a Savior we have. What a Lord that He would do that. Do you find yourself in a position where blessed really means happiness? Are you a happy camper here today? Are you distracted, discouraged by your surroundings? Well, for every one look at ourselves, to borrow a statement that a great Scottish preacher, Robert Murray McShane, spoke, for every one look at yourself, take looks at Christ. It'll do wonders for you in your life. And it'll get your eyes off yourself, which is always wasted time. And I, I just can't imagine when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and as my pastor and dear friend said to me one time, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and Christ evaluates our lives based on whether we lived it under His Lordship or we lived it under our own authority. Our lives are going to look like a slice of Swiss cheese because there's going to be a lot of parts of it just gone. Why? Because we live for ourselves instead of yielding ourselves to the Lord. He wants us to be men and women who do this. Many of you know the poem Invictus. It goes like this. William Ernest Henley wrote it. 
He says, I am what? The master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the epitome of humanistic thinking, man-centered thinking. We come before the Lord in humility and we do as he would have us to do. I've read some articles in the last week about impending doom in the stock market by reputable sources, I might add. And so I thought about it. And then I thought about a quotation I heard, I don't know how many years ago. And I thought it was from John Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller. And so I Googled it, and sure enough, this was the quotation. He was asked by someone, Mr. Rockefeller, how much more money would be satisfying to you? And he said, just a bit more, he said. And that's all I'd ever read of that particular statement. I thought, well, old Rockefeller, he had so much money and he was eaten up with it and all, but I began to investigate his life. Would you be surprised to learn, if you don't already know, that John D. Rockefeller, who was raised in a very poor home, in a single parent home in effect, John D. Rockefeller, at the age of 16, went to a business college and got his accounting degree, bookkeeping really, is what it was. And at age 31, he started the Standard Oil Company. And by the time he had reached 50, his net worth was 2% of the gross domestic product in the United States. He was considered at that time, and by historians of economics, to be the most wealthy man, not only in the U.S., but in the entire world. What he learned as a boy, his mother was a devout Christian, father was absent. His mother would take him to church, and she would encourage him when the offering plate was passed every week, to take all the pennies, there weren't many of them, that he might have in his pocket and put them in the offering plate. About that time, there was a pastor who took an interest in this young man, and he said to him, John, what I suggest you do with your life, make all the money you can and give all you can away to the Lord. He took that to heart. He invested hundreds of millions of dollars. He gave it away, gave it away, gave it away because he had Christ as his Lord and he believed what Christ said. Wherever he went on his travels, and they were considerable, the first thing he wanted to know is where is there a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church? I want to be there to worship the Lord. He did that. And this man was a man who throughout his entire life gave, gave, gave to the church, but also to other charities. He was instrumental in the ending of yellow fever in the United States and hookworm and all that was associated with that. But he was a happy man because he did not let his own selfishness, his own greed, cause him much despair in the long run. So as we finish today, 
let's keep in mind what Jesus calls us to. He's called us to be disciples of His, and He's called us to minister to one another. We have, most of us, someone who lives with us. Minister to that person. Care for that person. What if that person doesn't thank you? Have you ever had someone, either in your family or outside your family, who you did something for and you do it regularly and you never get a thank you? Well, Jesus tells a parable, and I encourage you to read it in the 17th chapter of Luke, beginning with verse 7, about a servant, a slave really, who has worked all day, probably the only servant of this owner comes in, and the man says, don't stop until you change your clothes, don't do anything for yourself, prepare my meal, feed me, and then when, as Jesus tells the parable, it's over, he doesn't even thank him. And sometimes we have that in our lives. Some of you are dealing with that today. And what I want to take note of is that Jesus says, in Col not Jesus, but Paul says by the Holy Spirit in Colossians 3.24 to slaves, mind you, who knew Christ and had harsh treatment at times from their owners. He said, it is the Lord Christ you are serving and I, I think about that. I am a servant of the Lord. And when I serve anyone who is a brother or sister in Christ, and others too for that matter, it can be like Christ is being served through me. Keep that in mind as you make a commitment to serve Him. And do it with gladness, by the way. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. Thank you that you are a teacher. More importantly, we thank you that you're our Lord and Savior. And we ask that we would be men and women who carefully examine the Word of God. And we look for instruction. And we want to be obedient. Forgive us, Lord, forgive me for talking a good game so often, but not living it out. Give us a fresh start today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.